Father, we come to you now and we thank you that you are not absent from us, but you are present to us, that you are with us wherever we might find ourselves this morning. And we ask, oh God, now that you might meet us where we are at and that by your spirit, you would take us where you want us to be, that you would expose pockets in our life of unbelief, places where our own perspective is distorted. And we pray, oh God, that your spirit would give us a clear vision of life and what it's really all about. And so come Holy Spirit during this time, speak to us, open hearts and eyes and do the work that only you can do. And we ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. So if you are joining with us for the first time this morning, we have been in a series called Centered in the Chaos, and it's a study through the book of Psalms. Now, there's a lot of Psalms that deal with external threats to our lives and to our well-being, like wars and natural disasters and injustice and oppression and and people who seek to threaten our lives. Uh, But today we're going to look together at a psalm that addresses a deep and a very sinister internal threat that I think is pretty common, and it's the problem, it's the internal threat of envy. You know, a few weeks ago, some of our younger staff uh, had surrounded me and they were strongly encouraging me to get on social media. They said, Josh, you need to get an Instagram account going, you know, and I'm off social media. I've kind of been away from that. And so I was resisting uh, their arguments. And one of the reasons that I gave to them is I just said, look, uh, social media is just a time suck. And I already feel like I don't have enough time. Uh, But, you know, I think maybe a more honest reason is that, Social media for me may be a danger. And I think one of the reasons for that is that social media, Instagram, Facebook, and all the rest, it can be a greenhouse for envy. You know, people take those perfectly curated photos of their perfect family on their perfect vacation. And I know myself, and many of you know, you look at that and you don't think, oh, how awesome that you had such a great time with your perfect family and your perfect vacation. You think, I hate you. And you think, I, I don't like you at all. And, and I know myself by nature, I'm competitive. I'm a little bit more achievement, success oriented. And oftentimes I can find myself comparing myself to other people. And of course, social media is one of the places, it's one of the venues for that kind of comparison analysis that we do all the time. And my brother told me, uh, he's a pastor in Arkansas, and he said that last year during Lent that a bunch of people in his church gave up social media. And he said he heard something said so often that he eventually wrote it down, and it was this, quote, during Lent, I gave up Facebook, and I realized I was happier without it. Or this, Pinterest makes me hate my house. Or this, I stopped following a friend on Instagram, and now that I don't see nonstop snapshots of her perfect life, I like her so much better. You know, the book of Proverbs, this ancient book of wisdom, uh, the wisest person that ever lived uh, wrote this. He said, a heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. Isn't that just a graphic metaphor, graphic image? He says, envy rots the bones. And and I think what he's getting at is he's telling us that envy is toxic. And many of you know this, envy is toxic to us emotionally. You know, many of you, you wrestle with anger and with depression and it's there inside of you. But you know, if you scratch below the surface, what you often find is envy. 
You're angry, you're bitter, you're, you're feeling hatred toward yourself because you've compared yourself to others and you don't like what you find. Envy, of course, can uh, be toxic for us relationally. It leaves us competing with people who don't even know there's a competition. You know, it makes us not a very good friend or brother-in-law or friend or spouse. And many of you have experienced this in real time. And so envy can be toxic for us emotionally. It can be toxic relationally. But what we see uniquely, I think, in Psalm 73, the Psalm that we're gonna look at today, is that envy can be toxic spiritually. It can actually destroy our spiritual lives, our relationship with God. And this morning, I wanna invite you to look with me at this brilliant Psalm that's written by a man named Asaph who opens up his own heart and life and shares with you and me his own struggle with envy. You know, one of uh, my favorite commentators on this Psalm, Walter Bergerman, he calls this uh, one of the most remarkable and satisfying of all the Psalms. And it's certainly one of my favorite because I can just relate to the words of this Psalm. I feel like when I read through this, I can enter into it and it feels like it could have been written last week because it's that relevant. But here in this book or in this Psalm, he opens up his own life and his own struggle with envy. And he shares with us how this struggle with envy created a crisis of faith for him that, all, that almost destroyed him. And then he shares with us how we can find healing from envy in our own life. And notice how he opens the psalm. He opens it like this. He says, truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And here in these opening verses, he really gives us the theme, uh, the thesis statement of the entire Psalm. He says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And let's note first in this psalm something of his struggle with envy. And here we learn what envy is. And notice back in verse three what it says. He says this. He says, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I was envious when I saw. When I saw what? when I saw their prosperity. In other words, he's not envious of their wickedness. He's not envious of their arrogance. He's envious of their prosperity. And when you look at the text, you see that, that Asaph, the psalmist, the writer here, has made a close study of their prosperity. He has some people who he's fixated on and he's noticing them. He's looking at their lives. Maybe some of you have people who you're fixated on, and you're looking at, your, at their lives, and you're comparing their life with your life. This is Asaph. And when he looks at them, notice what he sees. Verse four, he says, for they have no pangs until death. That word pangs uh, is a reference to a deep emotional pain. He's saying, look, internally, he says, I, they're, they're clearly fine. He says, they're not wrestling with any deep emotional heartaches. And then he says, their bodies are fat and sleek. He says, they have great bodies. You know, in the ancient world, to be fat and sleek was a good thing 
because it meant that you had the wealth and the affluence to eat anything you wanted and to sit around and have people wait on you. And so when somebody saw somebody was fat and sleek, it was a sign that this was a person who lived life in comfort and affluence and self-indulgence. They made it. And he says, they have no pangs until death and their bodies are fat and sleek. And then he says, verse five, they are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. And so he's noting their internal lives and he says, they seem to be at peace, they're fine. He looks at their bodies and he says, they're great. And then he looks at the circumstances surrounding their life and he says, they live a charmed life. Everything is going well. And then he says, what makes it worse is that he says, these people are proud about it. Look at what it says in verse six. He says, therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. And then look what it says. They set their mouths against heavens and their tongue stretched through the earth. And so these are people whose lives are going great and they know it and they are proud about it. You know, it reminds me of that saying by Barry Schwitzer. He said that some people are born on third base, but they walk around life acting like they hit a triple. And here are these guys, they're walking around, you know, they've made it and they act as if God had nothing to do with it. People around them had nothing. It was all about them and their greatness and their strength and their intelligence and how awesome they are that made them so great. And the psalmist is looking at these arrogant people and he says, I can't stand them. And he looks at them, their life is going great. And then he contrasts that with his own life. And look at how he puts it in verse 12. He says, behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. There's a typo there. It says always at east. It's supposed to say they're always at ease. They're always at ease. I don't think they're all out east. I think they're always at ease. They increase in riches. Their life is easy. They got it made. But then he contrasts them and their prosperity with him. He says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence for all day long. I have been stricken and afflicted and rebuked every morning. And this is envy. Envy is when you are bitter that they have it better. You know, in his classic book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis it makes this really insightful point about pride that I think is germane to envy. And he says this, he says, look, he says, pride is essentially competitive. And listen to what he says. He says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer, cleverer, and better looking than others. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition is gone, pride is gone. And envy is really the opposite side of the ledger from pride. If pride is the pleasure of being above others, envy is the bitterness we feel at being below others. You know, it was Andy Stanley who, who, who quipped that envy grows in the land of Ur. 
You know, when we want to be richer and smarter and prettier and more successful-er than the people around us because it makes us feel better about ourselves. And of course, the land of er doesn't just stop with us. Uh, we want to marry a person who is er. You know, someone who is richer and smarter and prettier and more successful-er than the next person. And then after you get married and you have a family, you want your kids to have some er, you know? You, you, you want to look at everyone else's kids and you want to know that your kids are better, that they're smarter, that they're more well-advanced-er, that they're, you know, uh, they're, they're sharper, more spiritual-er or whatever than the other kids, you know, and I don't know how many of you parents can remember this or how many of you are young parents now, but I can remember back when uh, I had my first daughter, Audrey, going down to the baby park in Seal Beach, you know, and you can see your child there and the child is, you know, 18 months, two years old, and they're playing on the playground equipment. And then you notice somebody else's child who maybe looks a little bit smaller than your child, and they seem to be more adept at climbing on the equipment, and they walk up to their mommy, and they seem they can articulate themselves a little better. They're putting full sentences together. And then what's the next thing you do as a parent? Well, you walk over to their, their, uh, the, the mom or the dad, and you say, so... Um, how old is your child with a smile on your face? Now, of course, in that moment, you're not asking for information. You're doing a comparison analysis. You are comparing how your child stands up to their child because you want to know, is my kid more advanced than yours? This is the comparison trap. And you know, this is envy. It is getting bitter when others have it better. And there's an even uglier side to envy because it's not just getting bitter when they have it better. Envy is about being glad when they have it bad. And this is probably the ugliest, the most shameful part of, 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 of envy. You know, there's this German word called uh, schadenfreude, schadenfreude. So turn maybe to the person next to you if you're sitting down with somebody on your couch or whatever and just shout that word at them and say, schadenfreude. And uh, you say, well, what does that word mean? It's the delight in someone else's failure or defeat. Now, you didn't know the word, but you know the emotion, don't you? You heard that something was wrong, you know, their perfect child got kicked unexpectedly out of school, or the wealthy and the affluent friend that you have lost their home, or their perfect vacation was canceled. And you, you hear that, and you hear them tell the story, and, and you look at them externally, what you're saying is you're saying, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. That's so terrible. But inside, there's something, there's this wicked, evil, ugly part of you that thinks, yes, am I alone in that? Is there anyone else who ever knows that wicked, awful feeling of actually having a tinge of satisfaction at the failure of others? One old philosopher put it like this. He said, in the misfortune of our friends, we find something that is not displeasing to us. Now, most of us don't like to admit it because that's so gross and bad. But let me just ask you this diagnostic question just for you as you think about your own heart as it relates to envy. How do you respond in your own life when you run into somebody who has a little more er than you? 
When you see the post on Facebook or Instagram and you see their perfectly curated family or girlfriend or spouse or kids or parents or whatever, what do you feel inside? And do you gain some gross satisfaction when you hear about their failures? When you walk, when you see a, a friend down at the beach and, and they look like they're a little more pudgy this year than last year and you feel like, I can be friends with you now. But, but you, you actually are taking some pleasure. Where do you find yourself in this, in relationship to envy? Well, here, Asaph is wrestling with envy. He's looking at them, he's looking at himself, and he's feeling bitter, he's feeling upset, he's feeling angry. But I want you to see that the struggle with envy doesn't end there. It actually leads him, and note well, it leads him to a crisis of faith. Because look at what it says in the text. You see, what we're finding in this text is this is an acute case of envy. Uh, the, 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 the prosperity of the people around him are an extra bitter pill for him to swallow because he's looking at them and they are not nearly as good as he is. And so this person shouldn't have it better. Notice back in the text, uh, it, it says back in verse six, they're proud and they're violent. Uh, their heart overflows with follies. They scoff, they're speaking with malice. They're threatening oppression. Do you get the sense that these people have not got to where they're at because they have been hardworking and delayed gratification and been good, faithful people of integrity? No, they've gotten where they've gotten, not because of their strong work ethic or whatever, but because of their own unjust actions. Walter Brueggemann points out that Asaph here is making a shrewd economic observation in our text. He says, look, these people, they're not disinterested. They're not well off and well-fed because they're lucky. Their wealth and their comfort is based on violence and oppression. They're skilled and they're adept at self-interest and they have no shame about it. And here's the kicker, it works, it works. And Asaph looks at them and he says, here I am. And you should note this about Asaph. Asaph is a leader in the temple. He's a priest. He has a high level of authority. He has given himself to serve thousands and thousands of people in Israel at great cost to his own life. Uh, he leads the choral group at, at the temple and he manages people. And, and he's a strong leader. He's godly. He's given himself. I mean, he's writing one uh, here, here. This is just one of 11 other Psalms that he's gonna write in this whole section. He's writing the Bible. He, he's a hardworking, godly person. And, and he thinks to himself, no doubt, here I am. I work hard, I serve the church, I give my money away, I read my Bible, I've tried my best to raise my kids. I'm not perfect, but I've tried. And here, my son has gone off the deep end. My wife has this terminal illness. My business is struggling. My marriage is difficult. I'm lonely. My health is shot. Here's me, and then here's them. They're self-indulgent. They're taking advantage of people. They don't work nearly as hard as I do. They're not as faithful as I do. They've ignored the poor. They've ignored God. And yet things are going 
great. And he thinks in a moral and in a fair universe, how is this okay? How is it that all of my hard work and my efforts at faithfulness are irrelevant to what's going on in my life? I mean, shouldn't be there be some correlation between somebody who works hard, who lives a blessed life or who lives a godly life and then them being blessed and having a rich and full and prosperous life? And doesn't the Bible itself teach that, says Asaph? Didn't I learn that in Sunday school that cheaters never prosper? And yet here the cheaters are prospering and the godly are suffering. And he's thinking, what gives? And he walks all the way to the edge, all the way to the precipice, and he's about to jump off. Notice what he says in in verse 13. He says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. My whole life of faithfulness to God has meant nothing to God. It's been vain. It hasn't achieved anything. For all day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. And I think what I find so significant about these words is that externally, no doubt, Asaph probably looked fine. He's a leader in the church. He's a poet. He's a writer. He's a singer. He's leading music. Externally, he's doing all of the right things. And he's not talking to people about his problems. He's not exposed himself. Notice what it says in verse 15. He says, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He says, look, I'm keeping it down because I have a responsibility to the next generation. I don't wanna lead them down the path that I'm going down internally. But here's the thing. There's this huge dichotomy between where he's at externally and what he's doing and where he's at internally. And what's happening inside is envy and bitterness and anger, and he's about ready to walk away from it all. And he is not the first and he's not the last godly person who has served the church, who has been faithful, that externally looked really good, but below the surface, they find something deep. There's something brewing. There's this nagging deep suspicion that maybe it's all been for nothing. And some of you have been there. And some of you are there right now. I think all of us have known those people that it seemed like, you know, everything was going well. Maybe they were a church leader. They had a successful ministry. And then it seems like out of the blue, they just leave it all. They have an affair or they walk away from the faith or they, 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 they do something to denounce Christianity or whatever. And, and you think, what happened? It seems so, so sudden, but actually it wasn't sudden at all. There had been something brewing underneath the surface all along. You know, the Proverbs tell us to keep watch on our hearts because from our hearts flow the issues of life. And I think one of the things that Asaph is encouraging us to do is to pay attention to what's going on underneath the hood, what's going on underneath the surface in your own heart. And if you don't, it could mean that ultimately you leave it all and you give it up. But Asaph doesn't do that. 
Instead of walking away, he experiences this profound transformation in this psalm. And this psalm has some of the most robust and beautiful and strong words of faith in the entire scripture. He says things like, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He has this dramatic turn. And I want you to see in the text where his healing took place and how he found healing from his envy. Notice what it says in verse 16. He says this, but when I thought how to understand this, it was wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. You know, it's interesting, almost all of the scholars on this text say that this psalm can easily be divided into three main parts. And in the first section, Asaph is obsessed with himself in comparison to the wicked. But in the second half, Asaph is obsessed. He is overcome with Asaph's relationship to God. And there's this dramatic change that happens in the center of the text and the very hinge that swings Asaph from a very self-absorbed, a very flat existence where he's looking down, where all he can see is what's happening around him and with all these people who seem to be prospering to where he turns and he's looking up and he's surprised by joy and fullness in God is this little hinge verse in 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God. This last week, I was listening to a lecture on cognitive behavioral therapy. And many of you, uh, you're familiar with this. Some of you uh, participate in cognitive behavioral therapy, but it differs from other types of therapy in that it, with CBT, you're not simply there expressing kind of stuff, what's going on inside of your heart and life in a presence of somebody who hears you and is listening to you. In, in, in cognitive behavioral therapy, you actually get a change in perspective. And the whole goal, it isn't to change the circumstances around you in your life. The goal is to have a switch in how you perceive the circumstances of life. And here in the temple, I was thinking, you know, he, here Asaph receives temple behavioral therapy and he gets this dramatic switch in perspective. And it's interesting because nothing really changes in his circumstances. You know, the... the the, the wicked, they still have their bodies, they still live in comfort and everyone still loves them and nothing has changed. But for the psalmist, everything has changed. He's now free and content and happy. He ends by saying, for me, it is good to be near God. And here in the temple, he learns a new perspective on the wicked and a new perspective on God. And I want you to see that first he gets a new perspective on the wicked and their end. Look at what it says in verse 18. He says, truly you have set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. Oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you will despise them like a bad dream. 
It's as if Asaph is saying, look, I went into the temple and before I was so obsessed with the prosperity of the wicked and I was envying them, but then I went in and I realized the end of the wicked and now I pity them. God, you will one day wake up and you will hold this world to account And all of those who have made their wealth in self-indulgence and in oppression and in unjust ways and through a lack of integrity and through stepping on other people, God will one day hold the world to account. You know, one of my favorite preacherly stories is about a farmer that lived next door to a church. And this farmer uh, was bitter against God and he hated the church next door. And so every Sunday morning, he'd hop in his tractor and he would plow his fields, getting as close to the church as possible so to disturb their worship service. Well, after doing this for an entire season of plowing, a harvest time came. And in October, uh, when he went to reap his harvest, he found that he had a bunker crop, the best harvest he'd ever seen. And he wrote a letter into the local newspaper bragging about how he was mocking God and mocking the church and plowing his fields. And he had the greatest crop he'd ever seen in October. And then the preacher of the church wrote back in to another editorial with this one line. And his line was simply this, God doesn't settle accounts in October. You know, it was Martin Luther King Jr. who said that the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And it is long, but it will ultimately, the creation itself will bend itself to God's justice when God reveals himself as the world's true king and makes everything right. And on that day, ultimately, all of those who have engaged and sowed to the flesh will reap of the flesh destruction. And so the psalmist says, I will not live in opposition to God because opposition to God will not endure in the end. And so number one, he gets a new perspective on the end. But secondly, he gets a new perspective on God. And look at what he says in verse 21 to 22. I like this. He says, God, I have been so stupid. When my soul was embittered, When I was pricked to the heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You know, it's interesting, the language that Asaph uses when he talks about God in this text. I mean, he says so many beautiful things. God is his strength. God is the one who will never leave him or forsake him. God is his great guide. But the phrase that caught my attention is this phrase when he says, God is my portion forever. Because Asaph is a priest, he's a Levite. And what's interesting is in the Old Testament, the Levites, uh, when the land of Israel was divided up and God was divvying out portions of the land, he gave a portion to the different tribes in Israel, but the Levites got no portion of land. And on the one hand, that was symbolically saying something about God is ultimately the ruler over all the lands of the earth and what we have ultimately belongs to God and it comes to us as a gift from God. But the Levites got no land. Instead, 
in the Old Testament, it says in the book of Leviticus that God himself would be the portion that God would give to the Levites. They got no land because God himself was their inheritance. God was their portion. As if to say, look, of all of the great gifts that we might receive in all of creation, the greatest gift that God gives is the gift of God's own transcendent, beautiful, holy, loving self. And God gives himself fully and unreservedly to creation in the incarnation of Jesus. When God comes among us, God so loved the world that he gave his own son. And in the incarnation of Jesus, walking as flesh and blood among us to be the God with us and for us so that we ourselves might have God in relationship with God. And this is the great gift that God gives to Asaph. And I can just imagine Asaph, as it were, like thinking. He's kind of like looking out at the portion of those arrogant, oppressive, wicked people, and he's envying what they have. He envies their portion. But as he goes into the temple, his perspective changes, and he realizes, I have a portion that is far better and greater and more eternal It is the very gift of God's own self. Now listen, if you are brand new to Christianity, I just want you to know that God came into the world. If you wanna know like what is Christianity at in its essence, it is about how God entered into creation and moved heaven and earth, how God gave his own son to the point of death so that he might restore a relationship between God and us. So that through Jesus, we might actually know God and be known and loved by God. You can have a relationship with God. This is God's portion that he gives to us, his very self. You can know God if you will come and just receive him. But you know, if you have been around the church for a long time, maybe you grew up in church and, and you've heard kind of like, you know, the, the Sunday school answers again and again and again, you know, like that lady who in her Sunday school class said, you know, uh, what's uh, gray with little eyes and a big bushy tail. And the children in the Sunday school class says, you know, it sounds like a squirrel, but the answer is always Jesus. It must be Jesus. And you might hear this and think, so the antidote to envy is God. That sounds trite and a bit cliche. And what does it even mean? But there's nothing trite and nothing cliche about these words. You know, I was uh, reading this last week about the civil rights movement. And I read about two individuals in the civil rights movement who no doubt strolled just like Asaph with how the wicked around them seemed to prosper and have all going for them while they themselves were getting beaten and their lives were under threats. And the first one was the mother of Emmett Lewis Tell, who was a young 14-year-old boy who was brutally lynched by some white Klansmen. And his mother, Mamie, to the shock of the nation, had his casket at his funeral open so that all could behold his mutilated body and see the shock and horror. And that in many ways was what launched the civil rights movement in earnest. 
But this work was not easy for Mamie. And she said, what was it that, that helped her, that gave her the strength to follow through with such work, putting her own life in danger when she could have retreated away in bitterness and anger? And she described an encounter that she had with God, where God revealed that God was for her and that he would be with her as she moved on in this. A little bit later, I read about Dr. King who, of course, whose own life was under threat, constantly receiving bomb threats and whatnot, but who also shared about how the thing that gave him the sustaining power to continue on in the face of what seemed like an incongruity between what, seemed, what should be a fair and just universe and the injustice around him, what, continue, what allowed him to continue on with faith in God, and it was this deep encounter with God. He, he recalls how on January 27th, 1956, in early weeks before the Montgomery bus boycott, he received a telephone call threatening to blow up his house and he said he experienced then a midnight of the soul. And recalling this incident, King wrote how the overwhelming fear drove him from his bed and into the kitchen where he prayed, Lord, I'm down here trying to do what's right. But Lord, I must confess that now I am weak. I'm faltering. I'm losing my courage. And yet then and there he heard this voice that said this. He said, quote, Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness, stand up for justice, stand up for truth, and lo, I will be with you even to the end of the world. Three nights later, when King was at a boycott meeting, his house was bombed. King calmly accepted the word of the bombing, saying that his experience with God a few nights before gave him the strength to face it. And it's true, the very thing that the, the transcendent power that can break into your life and give you the strength to have freedom from envy and fear and a bitterness regarding kind of the injustice around us to continue to move on in life is this experience with the very personal presence of God who has come near us in Jesus. The last thing I just want to observe for you is this. Asaph had this experience of the presence of God when he went into the sanctuary. And at this time, I just want to invite our, invite our band to come up as we start to move into communion. But I was thinking about what it must have been like for Asaph to go into the sanctuary. So this was a space where hundreds of the children of Israel would gather together and there would be voices, choral voices, raising up to God in song. And it was a full sensory experience because they would see uh, the, the tapestries on the temple walls, and they would see the flames uh, from the, the, the candles in the temple. And they would, they would behold, you know, the incense rising up to God and smell it. And then there would be barbecued meat all around them because when they would go sacrifice their animals to God, they wouldn't just sacrifice it all. They would eat it also in the presence of God and in community with other people. And it was in this very palpable experience that the very glory presence of God would come among his people and meet them in this full sensory, physical, tangible experience. 
And this was the place where Asaph was reminded that God was for him and not against him and that God was enough. And you know, this morning, as we come together in the new sanctuary, you know, the people of God gathered together around word and sacrament. It is in these physical, tangible elements of the bread and cup where we are reminded viscerally and and palpably and tasteably that God has come to be the God who is for us and with us and among us. It is in these elements as we ingest them as strength to our body that we are reminded that God has given us the gift of his very self and God's self is a real good that is tangible and that is real and that is enough. And so as we prepare to come to this space of sharing in the Lord's Supper, I just wanna invite you to pause now. And I'm gonna lead us in prayer. And then I just wanna invite you into a space of confession. And in this space of quiet, I wanna invite you to name areas in your life where you have felt like you did not have enough, you were not enough, and confess that to God and open up your hands and recognize that God has given his very self to you and receive the gift of his presence into your life afresh here in this space and time. Let's pray together now. Our great God and Father, we come to you now and we confess that often we find ourselves with Asaph wrestling with envy about the prosperity of others. And Father, behind that is a lack of awareness that you have given us your very self, that you are our portion. And we confess to you, God, our unbelief We confess our envy at the advancement of others. We confess the ugliness in our heart that actually makes us satisfied and happy when others suffer because it makes us feel better. And now as as you prepare to share in the bread and the cup, I just wanna invite you to pause and just confess in your own heart and life those places where you have personally struggled with envy. Envy. 